welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Would you like to be seated? 11 people were rescued by a helicopter by um, it lowering a rope to them and uh, they grabbed hold of the rope and hung on grimly as the helicopter lifted them off their precarious perch. Ten of them were guys, one of them was a woman. They realised that the rope was about to break with the weight of 11 people suspended from the bottom of the helicopter. So they talked amongst themselves and said, well, look, at least one of us should let go. Otherwise, we'll all perish. They exchanged glances. No volunteers. Eventually, the woman said, all right, guys, I'm a woman, and I'm used to sacrificing myself for my husband and for my kids. Women are used to giving out to their husbands with no expectation of any return at all. I will let go and sacrifice myself. At that, all the blokes looked at her and then started clapping. (laughs) Never underestimate the power of a woman. We're doing a series uh, currently on Jesus' family tree and some of the characters in Jesus' family tree and some of the lessons we can learn from those members of his family, his ancestors, in terms of his human family. I've been uh, asked to talk to you tonight about a lady called Rahab who appears in Jesus' family tree. I think it's a very interesting story, so I'm enthused about what to tell you tonight. And uh, I've got lots of material, so my challenge is to leave out the bits that aren't all that relevant. But it's a great story, and uh, I want to tell you a bit of the story and read a bit of it, but particularly I want to bring out some points of uh, Rahab's life and her experience that might help us to become more mature as Christians. So, there are four accounts of Jesus' life, as you know. We call them Gospels or Good News. And one of those accounts, Matthew, is particularly concerned about how Jesus fits into God's cosmic scheme. And so he goes to great lengths of telling us what God's been up to and how Jesus fulfills what God's been working at for centuries. Jesus is not an afterthought. Jesus is God's plan A. And Jesus comes, and Matthew uses the word, fulfills hundreds of prophecies that have been made over hundreds of years. Jesus is an integral part of God's rescue plan for humanity. And so Matthew's gospel is particularly concerned about that. And uh, Jesus fits into God's plan. Matthew begins his uh, good news with a list of people 
that help to contextualize or put Jesus into a context. And unlike Luke, the other gospel account of Jesus' family tree, Matthew starts with Abraham, exactly where the Muslims start. But he starts with Abraham and then he lists down some names. Now, Bible colleges don't do any study on Matthew 1 to 17. Uh, If they're doing an exegesis, which is just explaining um, what the, the scripture is saying, they ignore verses 1 to 17 of chapter 1, because it's too hard. And this is the passage that you never want to be asked to read out loud anywhere, because some of the names are, well, they're unpronounceable. And so you never want to hear the words, Don, would you read verses 1 to 17 of Matthew chapter 1? You'd never want to hear that. Um, And I'm not going to attempt it tonight. But we will read a little bit of it to see where Rahab fits into the context of Jesus' family tree. We're going to look at it first. I I don't have any scripture on the screen, so it's up to you to find it on your iPad, iPhone, Bible. (laughs) If you're old-fashioned, like some of us mature people. So it's Matthew chapter 1. And uh, we're going to have a quick look at this. I want to read um, just some bits of it. Let's start with the first verse. An account of the genealogy, family tree, of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on to say some stuff. And what it says is, A was the father of B, and B was the father of C, and C was the father of D. You get the picture. So Matthew establishes a very clear pattern. This is what he's going to do. He's going to A, B, C, D. That's what he's going to do. So because he establishes a pattern, anything that stands outside of his prepared pattern is going to be really important because he's going to vary from his pattern. Why will he do that? Because it's important. He wants to make a point. Now, the amazing thing of this, this is a genealogy of a patriarchal nation. These are blokes. Blokes are important. We all know that. But women had very limited power and limited authority. The only power they had was probably pillow power. But why are you laughing? That's true. That's a a great power to have. Where am I going with this? Uh, let's, Let's get back to this. Limited authority, limited power, they weren't regarded highly in a patriarchal society. Do you know what patriarchal? Just masculine men in charge. Um, So anything that falls outside of this pattern, especially women, are there for a very important reason because it's so unusual to include women in a genealogy of a patriarchal nation. So, verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Aram, blah, blah, blah. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. 
And so it goes on. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife Uriah. So in this genealogy, we get four women mentioned by name and one other woman mentioned because she was the wife of some bloke. And the amazing thing about this is that each of these five women that are included either by name or by reference to in this genealogy all have questionable morals. Every one of them. Read the story of Tamar. Make your hair curl. And in this story that we're going to look at tonight, Rahab, whoa, man, it's, uh, there's a lot of intrigue in it. But here is a prostitute who somehow gets included in the list of Jesus' ancestors. Amazing. So we're going to have a look at it. And I'll try and do it quickly. This is the first mention of Rahab in the New Testament. And uh, so it kind of puts it into a bit of context for us. But now what we have to do is find out why she's there. Why is she important? And why is she so important as to be included in Jesus' family tree? To do that, we have to go back to the story, which is found in Joshua. That's in the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 2. Rustling of pages? Yes, there's some. That's good. iPads don't rustle, do they? Like, I miss that. I miss that. Can you? Oh, good. So we're looking at Joshua chapter 2, if you are able to follow along. And we'll look at a couple of verses in there. Um, the context here is God's chosen leader... The guy that he appointed to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt has died and his successor has been appointed, Joshua. Joshua and his mate Caleb were two of the 12 spies that were sent out into the land of Canaan when they first came out of Egypt. They were given a promised land by God and they scoped it out. They sent some spies out to have a look at this land of Canaan. Ten of the spies came back, said, can't do it. The people are too big. The cities are too heavily fortified and defended. There's no way we can take this land. We are like grasshoppers compared to them. Two of the spies, however, had a bigger picture and thought, God can do anything. We can do this. this God's promised us this land. If we make a bit of effort, God will more than meet us halfway. Their names, Joshua and Caleb. The only two spies who had faith to see what God had promised could become a reality. So Joshua is now in charge. Now, because the people hadn't gone into the, the uh, land and, done, and taken it over like God had promised, they were condemned to wander around for 40 years in the wilderness and a whole generation died out. So now Joshua and his mate Caleb are the only two left from that earlier generation. He's now leading a second generation of Israelites. And they're on the verge of entering the promised land again. And he tells them some things that they're going to do. Joshua sends two spies into a city that is right in their path. This is a heavily defended city, heavily fortified, and it's on a critical entry point into the, the promised land. 
So Joshua sends out two guys with special instructions. Now, I don't know whether he's learned anything from Moses, but if you know the story, you'll know that Moses sent the 12 spies out and the spies came back and reported to the whole people. Joshua changes the methodology. Joshua secretly sends them out and they report to him. There's a little key about leadership in that, to learn from other people's mistakes or learn from experience. So Joshua sends the spies out and they go to the city of Jericho. And that's where the story begins to get a little interesting. Um, I don't know how they crossed the Jordan because crossing the Jordan was a big feat uh, for the whole tribe of Israel when they came, out, when they came across uh, subsequently. But uh, the spies managed to cross the Jordan. Um, this last week, uh, a few of us have been up the Birdsville track and uh, we um, crossed over the Cooper's Creek at the narrowest bit of the Cooper's Creek. And even then, we had to get on a ferry and it took three minutes to travel from one side to the other on a ferry. Cooper's Creek, amazing. I felt privileged to be there. It's just wonderful water. Well, these spies had to somehow get across the Jordan River to get to where they had to uh, scope out the city. But they managed to do that somehow. We're not told how. So they go to Jericho, major city, and they scope it out. Somehow, they are not blending in too well. And they're noticed. Now, I'm not sure whether they dressed differently or whether it was their accent or whatever it was, but they, um, they were noticed. They uh, decided that they needed to spend the night there, and so they went to the red light district. And they went to the house of a prostitute whose name was? Absolutely. Who told you that? Anyway, they go to that house because they were blend in. Lots of blokes went there. So they went to the house. But in the meantime, the king of Jericho gets to hear that there are some strangers at Rahab's house. And so he sends some messages. Now, messengers. Now, while they're coming, Rahab hides these guys. She hides them up on her roof under some stalks of flax, like reeds. When the messengers come, they say, Where are the men who came? And so she says, they're not here. They just left. You've just missed them. They snuck out before the gates were shut. City gates she's talking about. And she said, if you head after them, you should catch up to them with no trouble at all. She lies, of course. She knows exactly where the guys are. But something has switched on in Rahab's mind. And so, she sends these guys on uh, the pursuers, the messengers, probably an armed force, I would imagine, sends them on a wild goose chase. Now, tonight's talk is brought to you by the letter A. Right? I'm very proud of myself to be able to do that. I usually hate that. I hate it when people get all the words that start with the same letter. But anyway, tonight it's letter A. So here we go. 
The first thing to learn from the story of Rahab was that she became aware of truth that was outside of her experience. After the men from Jericho had left, the city gates were closed and uh, locked up for the night. And so that gave Rahab a chance to go up to the roof and chat a little bit to the spies. And here's where I want to read a few verses. So starting from verse 9. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that dread of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Remember that statement. She's making a profound statement of awareness about God and the realm of his authority and power and significance. Now then, no, let's leave that bit. We'll come back to that. So here she is. She's talking to these guys and she's saying, I'm aware of all the miraculous stuff that your God has done for you and through you. And somehow, while she doesn't know God, she's beginning to glimpse the significance of God. Like the rest of the inhabitants of Jericho and the land of Canaan, she was fearful. And she knew that everyone else in the city of Jericho was fearful of these reports that had been gossiped probably over the village well, whatever. But news reports of what God had done for his people that whom he had delivered from Egypt some 40 plus years before. So while it was way beyond her experience, she begins to get a glimpse of the God whom the Israelites served. And she makes that amazing profession. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven and on earth. Now God's constantly revealing himself to people who don't fully understand him. Most people don't, can't recognize him or don't bother to think much about him. But God is in the business of revealing himself to individuals. Otherwise, we would have no idea of who he is. Rahab somehow can see beyond her own frame of reference. She can think beyond her own experience and realize that whoever this God of the Israelites is, Maybe her only chance of a future lies in her trust in this God and his plans. So Rahab becomes aware of God's existence, even though it's outside of her experience. They were only stories, but in those stories that she heard, those news reports, there was something irresistible about the onward march of the Israelites and the onward march of their God. And her future might lie in plugging in to the Israelites 
future. In contrast, I think many of us shape our view of God on our experience of God. And that's a very dangerous practice. For for example, we might read the book of Acts and we might get an, an idea of all these miracles that the early church was seeing performed through ordinary people because they had a belief in an extraordinary God. And we might read that but not allow that to affect our praying or our faith. But if we do that, we reduce our concept of God to our experience of God. God's far bigger than I can ever experience of him. God is far bigger than we can corporately experience of him. Even if we took the rest of the year to share our individual stories and applaud God's activity in our lives, he's bigger than that. So we need to be really careful about framing our view of God based on our own experience of God. We pray out of our own experience often and we build up our theology of God, our understanding of God by our own experience. But our God is bigger. Our God is magnificent. Our God is a God who heals. Our God is a God who saves. Our God is a star-breathing God. Our God is in charge of the cosmos. He gave birth to it by speaking it into existence. There's nothing bigger than God. Even in our wildest concept, our wildest imagining, we only get a glimpse of God. God's far more expansive than that. The larger our view of God, I reckon the more extravagant our worship's going to be. Because we understand He's worthy of our worship. Our God is supernatural. Satan's not bothered by our belief in God. He believes in God. So believing in God is not, is not the answer. What troubles Satan is the kind of God we believe in. And how much of a priority we give him in our lives. And how committed we are to living in response to our view of God. In accountability to God. And in responsibility to his rescue plan for humanity. Unless we've seen people healed, it's hard for us to pray for people with any conviction when we're praying for them for healing. Yet, always, our faith has to drive our experience. Never the other way around. Our faith has to pull our experience into a new frontier, into a new uh, understanding Of what being God's people really means. Christians are are to walk by faith. Not by sight. Nor by experience. Faith must influence our experience. Otherwise our concept of God. Will be reduced to our experience of him. So this God. Captivates the dreams. And the, the thoughts. Of a prostitute. A pagan prostitute. And causes her to recognize the possibility of a divine appointment. 
happening as she chats to these two spies, these two God people. And rather than following the crowd and trying to defend herself against these invaders, Rahab realises that somehow her only hope might lie in throwing in her lot with the two spies. Which brings me to the second point. Again, letter A. Rahab was alert to God's opportunity. As she talked to these two guys, these nameless guys, she realises this may be an opportunity for salvation. Not just for her, but for her entire family. Back to the account in Joshua 2. She says to these two spies, Now then, since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us this land. So here's a deal. She's contracting with these guys. If I've I've dealt with you kindly, you should reciprocate. But you see how clever she is because she recognises that the highest authority in these guys' lives is the Lord God Almighty. And she uses that term within her little contractual negotiation with them. Swear to me by the Lord God, your highest authority. There's no other other authority that you respect more than, than this God. So here she is, she's alert to an opportunity that could be taken, could be used for her. And she said, I've, been, I've dealt with you kindly. You deal with me kindly. And not just with me, because she could have selfishly said, rescue me. But she's much more expansive in her concept of salvation or rescue. So this recognition of a God opportunity is found in that terminology that she uses. Of saying, swear to me by the Lord your God. Here is an immoral, pagan woman acting beyond her experience and seizing an opportunity to save her entire family. Rahab demonstrates more courage, more maturity, more faith, more wisdom than most Christians. Don't you reckon? It challenges me. The spies honoured the deal. Joshua sent them on a mission. On that assignment, they strike a deal with this woman. Which is reasonable payment for her kindness to them. And she's done so at the risk of her own life. As if the king finds out that she's sent his uh, armed escort on a wild goose chase, she's dead meat. Joshua 
backs up his spy's agreement with this lady. So again, there's a little thing about leadership here. When you give people a job to do, back them up. Support them in that. When they make a decision, have to make a decision on the run, back them up. And Joshua does exactly that. The other thing is, God backs Joshua up. God doesn't require her and her family to be executed like everybody else in the city. Because the city was under God's judgment. It was a holy war. We don't understand all the details of that. We haven't got time to go into it. But it was a holy war. It was God's judgment on the city of Jericho. Anyway, back to the story. Rahab's house is built into the wall. Uh, There were two walls, Jericho, and they would put uh, towards the top of the wall planks between one wall and another. And uh, they would build houses on there. But they were basically defensive. And uh, her house was built on those planks. And so she had a window that looked over the outside. Very convenient. Uh, Particularly in this instance because the gates are shut. She lowers the men down on a rope out of her window so that they can escape. But she also gives them some sound advice. Don't go straight back to the ford. Because that's where the men will be waiting for you. Go into the hills and stay for three days until the men return. And once they're returned, then go on your way and you'll be safe. Wise counsel. Um, She adds to her kindness with kindness. So Rahab, uh, in order to preserve her safety, is told by the Israelite spies to signify her house above every other house by putting a crimson cord out of the window. And they make this undertaking that anyone in that house will be spared. If her mother or father, brothers or sisters go outside of the house when the battle is on, then they are not responsible for them. They become under the judgment of God. So to be safe, they have to be in that house that is designated by a crimson cord. It's the best I could do. Short notice. Short notice. Hangs a crimson cord out of the window. Sometime later, the attack happens. Um, there's a circumcision that takes place because all these, uh, these is a second generation Israelites, be no circumcision in the wilderness, so all the guys have to get circumcised. Then they have time to recover. Painful process. <laughs> then they have Passover. They hold. Passover festival so there's some days that lapse between when the spies return and when the attack happens and God gives Joshua clear instructions about how to, how to go about 
attacking the city. We're not going to go into the details, but you will know the story. Um, many of you will know the story anyway. The interesting thing is, and this amazes me, I, I wanted to leave this, out, this bit out, but I can't bring myself to leave it out. After Passover, they start to eat the produce of the land because they cross the Jordan miraculously. All the, all the Israelites now, not just the spies, but all the Israelites are in, Jordan, in Canaan and they've crossed the Jordan and they celebrate this feast and then they begin to eat the produce of the land. On that day that they start eating produce of the land, the manna, God's provision for them, 40 years in the wilderness, God providing manna from heaven, stops. God's timing, always perfect. Even if we don't think so. It's always perfect. The faithfulness of God. So God delivers Jericho miraculously into the hands of the Israelite army. Only Rahab, her parents, her brothers and sisters and all who belonged to her survived. And they were spared by Joshua. Joshua was backed up by God because faithfulness in the task, faithfulness in the assignment, faithfulness to God, faithfulness is currency in the kingdom of God. I want to read Joshua 6.25 to you quickly. But Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, Joshua spared. This is after the battle. Her family has lived in Israel ever since. For she hid the messengers, messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Here's the third thing to learn about Rahab. She was adopted into Israelite destiny into Israel's destiny and into God's family Hebrews 11:31 says this it was faith that kept the prostitute Rahab from being killed with those who disobeyed God for she gave the Israelite spies a friendly welcome in this great chapter you know it Hebrews 11 all the heroes of the faith are listed Rahab gets included in that as a hero of the faith She's a pagan prostitute. She's not only adopted into Israel's history, but she's held up as a model of faith. Her faith in God changed her destiny and God caused her to become a key member of Jesus' family tree. Indeed, I think Rahab exhibits the kind of faith in God that the Israelites themselves were called to exhibit. This outsider. In James, in the book of James, the letter of James, the writer makes the point that faith is expressed in action. It's not just a feeling, it's not just an intellectual position or a belief. True faith demonstrates itself in action. And he uses Rahab as an illustration of that very point. He says this. It was the same with the prostitute Rahab. 
She was put right with God through her actions by welcoming the Israelite spies and helping them to escape by a different road. James's point here is that if she had said to the spies, I believe in your God and understand your destiny is to occupy our land, but I can't help you in any, other, in any way because that's too dangerous. If she'd taken that position, her faith would have been inactive and dead. And so would she. It would have had no consequence, no opportunity, no capacity to change her destiny and the destiny of other people. However, because it resulted in her actively assisting the spies through civil disobedience and even lying, at the risk of her own life, her faith in God is activated and it changes her destiny forever. This crimson thread reminds me of that passage in Isaiah 1, 18. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What amazing grace. God is a God of grace. How could we possibly imagine a pagan prostitute could become great-great-grandmother to King David? How did that happen? Come on. No one is beyond God's forgiveness or grace or love. God's love never fails, never gives up, and never runs out. Well, where have we arrived? It's a great story. It's like a rollicking yarn when you read it. But there's some essential bits in there that we we miss to our own detriment, I think. And I hope you've caught some of them. Let me try and pull them together, maybe as the musos come. Rahab was aware of truth beyond her own experience. She knew that the Lord God had given the Israelites the land in which she lived. How she knew, we don't know. Maybe she didn't know how she knew. Maybe it was just a truth resonating inside of her. Our challenge is to feed ourselves on truth as often as possible, to grow our faith beyond our own experience. Rahab was alert to God's opportunity, an opportunity for her and for her entire family. And she acted decisively, refusing to follow the crowd. She realized that her destiny lay in God's expansive plans and in those plans alone. Like Rahab, we have to be alert to God's opportunities. Sometimes that's really tricky to recognize whether it's a God opportunity or whether it's a diversion. It's a challenge for us, isn't it? But nevertheless, we have to be prayerfully considering opportunities that God puts in our way. And we must be ready and willing to seize those opportunities and to respond and respond quickly. And due to both her awareness and her alertness and some wise negotiating skills, she gets adopted into Israel's destiny and into God's family.
This story is meant to give us great hope and great encouragement. It's a story about an outsider becoming an insider. It's a story that's a bit upside down, if you remember an earlier series we did. The kingdom of God is not full of perfect people. It's not made up of perfect people. The kingdom of God, exactly like Jesus' family tree, is made up of forgiven, redeemed, hopefully grateful people, but not perfect. The story of Rahab, I think, shows us that God is much more concerned about your future than he is about your past. While your past cannot be changed, it can be forgiven and your true destiny can be found only in God and in God's hands alone. You, have, you may have had the most limiting start in life that you could imagine or have experienced. You may have made some monumental blunders, some really bad choices. Yet the truth that this story shouts out at us is this. It isn't over. It's not finished. There is always a way to connect with God and to connect with God's purposes. While there's breath in our bodies, it's never too late to ask God to forgive us and give us a new start and to redeem us. Let's pray. Father, what a great God you are. How creative how majestic, how magnificent that you would change the destiny of this woman and her entire family because of her faithfulness and her kindness shown to some strangers from a nation that you had chosen out of all the nations of the earth in a land where you had chosen to give them to settle we're amazed that someone of her standing of her history could be so forgiven and so cleaned up and so easily adopted into your family and yet Lord that's our own situation too none of us are without sin none of us have lived well enough to earn your favour. It is only as we reach out for your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy that any one of us can be brought into your family and adopted as your children. So we thank you, Lord, that there is always hope in you. There is always a way back to you. So we thank you for your expansive, unlimited grace, mercy and love. And we rejoice in your constant activity of calling people back to yourself. Thank you for the story of Rahab. Thank you that her family line produced Jesus through the Holy Spirit's involvement. 
that we might be forgiven because of his death on the cross for our sins. Thank you for your goodness to us, the human race. Thank you for your goodness to us as individuals. And please help us to live our lives expansively and adventurously. To your honour and to your glory. Amen. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen and God bless.